This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life. And this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on him is not condemned. But he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we begin our study this morning, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we're thankful for the fact that you have not left us in darkness, groping around, seeking some way to understand our lives and understand our purpose, but that you have revealed yourself to us. You've revealed yourself to us in a nonverbal way through the uh, creation so that as we look at creation, we see that nothing there could have happened by pure random chance, but that it reflects a design, it reflects uh, intelligence, it reflects purpose and planning, and therefore tells us something about you as the creator. But beyond that, we have your revelation that you have given us in your word. You have revealed to us who you are. You have told us why you have created us and that you have created us in your image and likeness to glorify you and that you have described for us in your word the basic problem that we face, which is the problem of sin, the problem that we are all sinners, all have fallen short of the glory of God. And that because within each of us there is this corruption of sin, there must be a restraint by our volition and under the power of God, the Holy Spirit, that we can strengthen our lives and uh, overcome this temptation that arises from our own fallen nature. And that as we begin this study this morning of this book of Proverbs, This gives us counsel, guidance, advice, wisdom on how to live, that rather than yielding to the temptation of our sin nature, uh, yielding to the patterns and the policies of the fallen world around us, we learn to swim upstream, as it were, as we learn to apply your word, going against the natural inclination of our sin nature, the natural inclination of the world around us, and we learn to carve out a path of wisdom and understanding based on the instruction and the guidance of your word. Help us now as we study that you would, that we can understand what has been revealed to us and that God the Holy Spirit would make it clear how we need to apply these things in our own lives. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to the book of Proverbs this morning. Proverbs is a guide for skillful living. Guide for skillful living. Now, Proverbs is an interesting book. It's 
a one-of-a-kind book, I think, in the Scripture. There's none other like it. There are other books in the Old Testament that are of a similar nature, and scholars classify these as wisdom literature. There are some wisdom psalms. Uh, Proverbs is the ultimate wisdom book. Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, are also classified as wisdom literature. The concept of wisdom is one that is often misunderstood if you've never spent much time around uh, anybody who taught the Bible. Wisdom in our Greco-Roman heritage has a different connotation. That's the idea that comes from the Greek philosophers, and it has the idea of uh, intellectual acumen, uh, the ability to utilize uh, logic uh, and rhetoric in a, a um, in, in, an, in an intellectual manner, whereas the wisdom of the Middle Eastern culture was quite different. The wisdom of the Scripture was quite different. It has to do with the practical values of taking the instruction of God's Word and then applying it in an artful, skillful, beautiful manner to one's life so that you produce within the scope of your life something that has eternal value. So wisdom in a biblical sense is extremely practical. It is probably the word that most accurately reflects the farthest or most extensive way of applying Scripture. And as we go through the Proverbs, we're going to be introduced to a lot of new terminology, as it were, words that are used in a somewhat synonymous manner in the, in the Proverbs, but they're not identical. If you just look with me at the opening paragraph in Proverbs chapter 1, uh, verse 2, we see words such as wisdom, instruction, understanding, uh, down to verse 4, uh, prudence, also words knowledge, discretion, learning in verse 5, understanding again in verse 5, and wise counsel. These are key concepts, and they relate to a, a process or a flow of learning that is described in the Proverbs. And we learn at different ways in various stages to learning. Uh, learning is always based upon certain uh, foundational mental attitudes. If a person is not at, at the very core level of his being humble, he cannot learn. If you approach life with the idea that you already know the answers, that is an arrogant position. And if you already think you know the answer, then you're not going to listen to those who may know better. You will not be ready to submit to someone who has uh, excelled and studied and advanced in a particular field, and so you will not want to listen to their instruction or submit to their guidance. And this is a basic flaw that affects every single human being because that is the basic orientation of our corruption known as the sin nature. We think we are already good enough, we think we already know enough, and we think that our way is always the best way. But we run up against the fact that we are God's creatures. God is the one who created us, he's the one who made us, he designed us a certain way, and he has given us instruction in the scripture as to how we can conform 
to his will, his plan, and his design. When we run against that will and that plan and that design, we are, as it were, just trying to make things up on our own and try to make reality something other than it is. Uh, Psychiatrists have a term for that. One term is neuroses. A neurotic is somebody who... uh, <clears throat> who is living on a, on a dream, on the basis of their own dreams and fantasies. And some have, uh, some wags have said that a neurotic is someone who is building a, a dream castle in the clouds. And a psychotic is a person who's moved in. <laughs> and the psychiatrist is the landlord. But the, the neurotic is somebody who says, well, the world is not the way anybody else says it. It's the way I want it to be. Well, that's, and then the result is when you live upon those fantasies that it creates calamity in your life. Uh, the, psych, the psychotic is the one who's completely convinced that the world is not the way anybody else says, but the way he thinks it is. And that really leads to self-destruction. And most people are living as neurotics and psychotics because of their sin nature. That's the orientation, the Bible says, of the sin nature, is we suppress the truth in unrighteousness. We're constantly redefining uh, the world so that it's not what God says it is because we are, at the core of our beings, often in rebellion against God. The only solution, God says, is to humble ourselves and orient to him and to his plan. That is why in verse 7 of this introduction, the writer of Proverbs states the foundational principle for acquiring wisdom and to be able to have a skilled, uh, a skilled approach to life. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. It doesn't matter what your academic accomplishments are. It doesn't matter how many uh, facts you're aware of. It doesn't matter how much information you're able to control. Information and facts are not knowledge. Knowledge, to be true knowledge, has to be grounded in a true conception of reality. And that only begins if we orient ourselves to the fact that all reality is what it is because God created it that way. And he's the one who has defined it to be the way that it is. And so this is what the fear of the Lord is. It is not fear in the sense of uh, seeing some sort of horror movie and being scared uh, emotionally. It is the idea of a healthy respect for uh, God's authority, recognizing that to violate his standards, to violate uh, the way he created the world and live in con- uh, contradiction to it will just lead ultimately to our own uh, destruction and failure. Uh, unfortunately, the cause and effect in the spiritual and moral realm is not as uh, we don't see the response, the reaction as quickly as we do in the physical realm. If you take your hand and put it on a hot burner on the stove, you immediately get feedback that that's the wrong thing to do and uh, you don't ever want to do that again. 
but if you make certain decisions in the spiritual and moral realm, it may be 20 or 30 years before you reap the consequences of those bad decisions. And by then, what has happened is you have ingrained certain mental habit patterns and behavior patterns that to reverse course is extremely difficult. It's not impossible because under God's grace, we're always able to recover. But we may have just made it more difficult in the process. So as we look at the book of Proverbs, we're going to see intensely practical guidance on the issues of life. Now, there are several people here who are visiting, family, visitors from out of town, so uh, you may not be uh, familiar with the way in which we approach the word at West Houston Bible Church. When I start a new series, whether it's uh, in a long, uh, his, more of a historical narrative in the Old Testament or an epistle in the New Testament, I like to do a flyover at the beginning of the study, sort of a... Uh, bird's eye view of the epistle or the book so that we're oriented uh, to the plan. Like uh, if you're going to go on a trip and you're going to drive from here to Colorado or from here to Washington, D.C. or something like that, you want to look at a broad map of the country so that you can see what the best travel route will be and you have a bird's eye view of the entire trip. And then you come back and you break it down into its individual components so that you can plan out uh, where you're going to stop along the way, where you're going to eat, where you're going to spend the night, and that kind of a thing. And then you break it down into those details. So we start off with sort of a flyover, bird's-eye view orientation of the book. And sometimes this, uh, if you've never studied this way, uh, some of the details I get into at the beginning seem somewhat um, a, little, uh, a little boring perhaps for some because we get into some of the uh, issues that we need, especially in a book like Proverbs, some things we really do need to understand if we're going to comprehend what we're reading and really get the best out of it. Proverbs is a book of poetry. Forget whatever you learned in any class that you took on poetry because 99% of it, unless you were oriented to somebody who actually understood uh, the interpretation of literature, was based on some sort of postmodern subjectivism that has no meaning in fact. Um, my, I was an English major at, in my undergraduate work. It was my second major, and I remembered all the time that I was growing up in elementary school, junior high, high school. When we would study poetry, I always felt as if there was something missing. I really didn't see how... Uh, the teacher got whatever it was they got from the poetry as I read it. It, it just didn't seem to connect. It wasn't until years later that I began to understand some of the philosophical uh, influences upon interpretation that had impacted uh, literature studies and especially poetry in the last 200 years. And this whole concept of interpretation as it is taught and held by most secular theorists today, meaning is not in the mind of the author. Meaning is in the mind of the reader. Let me give you an example, just a simple example, just to prove how erroneous that is. When you're 15 or 16 years old, most of you can remember back to that time, uh, you had your first infatuation with a member of the opposite sex. 
and they either passed you a note or today sent you a text message or email and you saved that and you went home and you looked at that and you parsed it and evaluated it and you looked at every word and you thought of every different meaning and nuance that was there because you wanted to know what they meant. You didn't want to know how it made you feel or what you thought it meant. What was important was what they intended. See, that's the essence of interpretation, but academics today teach us that that the meaning of poetry is in the mind of the reader, not in the mind of the author. Well, the author, if they had any kind of intelligence at all, was trying to communicate something, and what matters is figuring out what they intended to communicate and not what we wish them to communicate. The other example I usually use is when uh, tax season is upon us and we have to fill out our income tax and you get your uh, income tax forms and you start reading the instructions on how to uh, fill out your form, you want to make sure you understand what the IRS means by those instructions and not what you want them to mean. Because if you don't fill it out according to their intended meaning, you know that you're going to get in trouble. And so these two examples make it clear to us that meaning it resides in the mind of the author, not in the mind of the reader. And what we do in Bible study is try to discern what the author meant, and we use various principles to do that because God uh, conformed himself to basic uh, basic techniques of writing and literature that were common in the culture to whom he was addressing, in this context, uh, ancient Israel, and within the context of the ancient Near East and in uh, the context of, of wisdom literature. And so we study on that basis, and we look at these different words, we look at the historical background, we try to understand also some basic ideas related to uh, Hebrew poetry, which is very different from uh, English poetry or Western poetry. Proverbs is a collection of wise sayings. It's not a narrative like we find in Genesis or in First or Second Kings or the Gospels. It's not a letter explaining or defining things like we might find in First Corinthians or Romans in the New Testament, but it's a collection of short pithy sayings that have boiled down key principles uh, in relation to life, and they are presented in either two-line two uh, dice stitches or sometimes three lines called a tri-stitch. We'll get into some of that vocabulary a little bit this morning, but I'm going to try to spread that out over two or three weeks so we're not just, don't just get an inf- information dump of new, new language all of a sudden. It's a collection of wise sayings taught, ultimately, I believe, they're recorded by Solomon. They're called the Proverbs of Solomon, but these were, I believe, what David, his father, taught him. This is a training manual for parents, ultimately, the parents of Israel to train how they should train their children and teach them so that as they mature, they can be wise in their approach to life. And so these principles are universalized not just to the immediate royal family of David and Solomon, 
but also to every family in Israel and ultimately every human being in the world. The title is given to us in the very first verse. It's the Proverbs of Solomon, identified as the son of David, the king of Israel. Solomon is the uh, author, and we have this title based upon this first verse. In the Hebrew, it's the Mishle Shloma. Uh, Shloma is the Hebrew form of Solomon. Shlomo is the uh, nominative uh, uh, name in Hebrew, Shlomo. Mishle is, refers to Proverbs, and so it's simply translated as the Proverbs of Solomon. In the Septuagint, which was the Greek translation of the Old Testament into, uh, from Hebrew into Greek, calls the book the Paromial uh, Salamantas, also just meaning the Proverbs of Solomon because this is the first couple of words in the book. The ancient way of, of uh, titling something was according to the first two or three words in that book. For example, the book of Genesis was called in the Hebrew Bereshit because the very first word in the Hebrew was Bereshit, which means in the beginning. So each book of the Old Testament is usually identified in the Hebrew by the first word of the text. We still see that carried on today in uh, papal pronouncements. If you hear a read of any kind of papal announcement, it is always titled by the first word or two in that uh, papal announcement. The Vulgate was the Latin translation of the Bible made by Jerome in the uh, 4th century, Liber Proverborium, meaning the book of Proverbs. Now, what's interesting is this word uh, that's as seen as a singular is actually a, com- a Latin compound of the, of the preposition pro, meaning uh, in the sense of uh, uh, many, and verbiorum, and that means many words. And it is a, a term that was coined to describe the essence of a proverb, which was to concentrate many th- words or many thoughts into just a few short words or phrases. In the rabbinical period, the book was referred to as the Sefer, which is Hebrew for book, Sefer Chochmah, which is the word for wisdom, the book of wisdom. And then in English, we've titled it the book of Proverbs. So this orients us. The author stated in that first book is Solomon. Solomon's the primary author. He was the third king of the United Kingdom of Israel, the son of David and Bathsheba, and the one who took uh, Israel to its heights of glory uh, in the ancient world before he became apostate, rejected God, and brought them under divine discipline. As we look at the book of Proverbs, <clears throat> I want to break it down so we get an overview. Not all of the Proverbs in Proverbs are written by Solomon, but he is the primary author. We are not sure if there was a collection of Proverbs prior to him and he began the process of collecting them or if this was something that he initiated. There are many things about its, uh, its origin that we're not certain of. The opening part is all of, a, of an oriented or of a, of a contextual unit. The, from chapter 10 on, it is basically just uh, unrelated sayings 
from one verse or another. Some have two or three verses, but they're basically unrelated. But the first nine chapters are all related around the theme of teaching uh, wisdom. The second division is referred to as Solomon's Proverbs. There are 375 Proverbs in these chapters, from chapters 10, verse 1, to 22, verse 16. This is followed by the third section, the 30 sayings of the wise, from chapter 22:17 through 24:22. In 24:23, and there's some debate about whether these are one unit or two, and I prefer to think that they're two units, we have a statement that these are further sayings of the wise, uh, 24:23 to 34, short section. And then in the fifth division are more Proverbs or additional Proverbs from Solomon, from chapter 25, verse 1, through 29, uh, 27. And here we have 137 Proverbs. So we have a little over uh, 500 Proverbs from Solomon here, but First uh, Kings tells us that Solomon wrote over 3,000 Proverbs. So this is just a part of his collection. This is the divinely inspired portion of his collection. And then in chapter 30, we have the sayings of Agur, the son of Yachin. We don't know exactly who he was, but he was probably not an Israelite. He was possibly an Arabian prince, Uh, These were likely written before Solomon, and they were added to the collection. And then we have, in addition to that, the seventh division, which are the sayings of Lemuel, who again is not a uh, was not a uh, Jewish king, probably an Arabian king. That is the guess of scholars. We're not sure at all, so you can't take that to the bank. But the sayings of Lemuel in that section is sometimes divided into two, the first ten verses uh, being the, the sayings of Lemuel, and then because the rest of that chapter is built on an acrostic and is the, chap- the section that deals with the godly woman, there are others who think that that might be a completely different uh, section. So I'll address that when and if we get there. So in terms of the authors, there's Solomon. I think some are from David, although they're not attested to be such. I think that is so because uh, ultimately David is the one who uh, instructed his son Solomon in wisdom. Then you have Agur and Lemuel. So there are at least four authors, probably more, for these um, for these uh, <coughs> proverbs. Now, as we look at the authorship, we look at Solomon, we see that Solomon is the, the individual who is most noted for wisdom in the Old Testament. He wrote over uh, 3,000 Proverbs, according to 1 Kings 4.32, as, as well as over, uh, as well as 1,005 hymns or psalms. Uh, he also asked God for wisdom, and God granted him wisdom. So he has a level of wisdom that goes above and beyond anyone else because of this supernatural endowment by God. And even though, the great lesson for us is even though Solomon is known for his wisdom, even though he is the author of this incredible book teaching the right path versus the wrong path, even though he is... Uh, been specially endowed and gifted by God in the way of wisdom. What we see here is that, that in the life of Solomon is that with all of that, he still chose to turn his back on God 
and through a series of bad decisions uh, because of the influence of the foreign wives that he uh, that he married in opposition to God's word, he ended up crashing in his spiritual life and ending his life in spiritual failure and leading the nation into idolatry. And so it's not just what we know or what or how much we know, or how wise we are, how much doctrine we know. It's our volition. It's our decision, how, how consistently we decide to follow the Lord. We know about Solomon's wisdom, secondly, is that his wisdom was superior to that possessed by all of the wise men of the East and of Egypt. Uh, this is seen in First Corinthians, First uh, Kings, rather, chapter four. Uh, verse 30, he is, had wise uh, wisdom beyond all of those uh, around him. Third, we see that Solomon was internationally renowned for his wisdom. Everyone around the world knew of Solomon. Israel wasn't just this little backwater uh, kingdom that was in the shadow of Egypt and Assyria and Babylon. But during the era of David and Solomon, it was the greatest kingdom on the earth. And all of the trade routes of the ancient world all intersected in Israel. And so the fame of Solomon spread throughout the world. We're told in 1 Kings 4.34 that men of all nations from all the kings of the earth who had heard of his wisdom came to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And in 1 Kings 10.24, we're told, Now all the earth sought the presence of Solomon to hear his wisdom, which God had put in his heart. So that, again, emphasizes the fact that, that the source of Solomon's wisdom was from God. And then I put in there the reference to to look at 1 Kings 10, 1 to 13. That is the story of the Queen of Sheba when she came uh, from the south in order to learn of wisdom from Solomon. Fourth point on Solomon's wisdom is that it, it was derived from God and it was exceeded only by the wisdom of Jesus Christ. This is seen in a statement by Jesus in Matthew chapter 12, verse 42, referring to the Queen of Sheba. He said, the Queen of the South will rise up in the judgment. He's talking about a future time. He's actually uttering a statement of condemnation of the Jews because they've rejected his wisdom, and uh, and he's pointing out that even the, the Queen of Sheba recognized the great wisdom in Israel, the wisdom of Solomon, and he says, the queen of the south will rise up in the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and indeed a greater than Solomon is here. There is a, a recognition in this principle that if there is someone who knows and studies and teaches the word of God, then what we need to do is orient ourselves as much as we can geographically to that person. And it's getting to a point in the history of this country where there are many, there are fewer and fewer good Bible teachers. Fortunately, we have the internet because I know that there are many times when people cannot move across the country. But I think today we live in a time when a lot of people just don't want to be inconvenienced to do that. I do remember a time when people would pack up and move clear across the country for the sole purpose of studying the Word of God under a well-taught teacher. We don't see that anymore. 
What's even worse is I remember a time up until about 15 or 20 years ago when men who thought they had the gift of pastor-teacher would pack their bags, pack their families, and they would move across the country to sit and study the Word of God at a seminary to be properly trained to go into the ministry. And I am saddened today because again and again, I, the first question I hear from, from too many young men is, well, can I take these classes over the Internet? You whiny wimp. You weenie. One of the most important lessons a young man who's going to be a pastor will ever learn is to trust God to supply their needs. And that means you get up, you pack your babies, you pack your wife, and you move across the country because if you can't trust God to supply your needs by moving across the country to go somewhere to study the Word of God, you failed the first class in being trained to be a pastor. How will you ever trust God to supply the needs of your congregation if you can't trust Him to supply the needs of your family to move across the country to be properly trained to be a pastor? I mean, it just it amazes me, and nobody listens to this anymore. And those of us who are a little grayer, who've been around a few years, who are involved, like with Chafer Seminary and others, you can't understand this. But this is a generational flaw today, that we don't want to do this. And here you have people like the Queen of Sheba from ancient times. This is what she did to go learn true biblical wisdom, divine wisdom from Solomon. It is a condemnation for every one of these young men who just doesn't want to get up and move across the country and go to seminary because they don't have the spiritual faith and trust and courage to move out. And if they don't, what's that going to do to their congregation? That's my rant for the morning. The book's last section in Proverbs 25 to 29 was originally authored by Solomon, but these Proverbs were then edited during the time of Hezekiah, according to Proverbs 25.1. Uh, Hezekiah lived and was a king at a time uh, in around 700 B.C. during the time of the Assyrian invasion. And this was a time when there was a spiritual renewal and revival in Israel. And as part of that, they went back and recovered much of the Mosaic law and applied it and uh, developed the, uh, the, probably during this time, brought the book of Proverbs to its uh, uh, present organization. So we, what we do know about the dating of it is that Solomon's portion was probably written during the early to middle part of his life, somewhere around 950 B.C., but other passages were written at times that we are not aware of. There's no way of dating them with any kind of precision. Now, as we look at the uh, structure of this, just we need to learn a little bit about Hebrew poetry little bit about poetry. Hebrew poetry, especially in the wisdom literature, is didactic. That's a term uh, from the Greek word didaskalos, meaning teaching or instruction. It's designed to teach, to inform, to instruct, and to prepare people for living according to God's word. Uh, it's not based on uh, the kind of rhyming that we have in English po- poetry based on the rhyming of words, assonance, the similarity of sounds. It's based on, according to the last paragraph on the screen, based on a type of parallelism, sort of the rhyming or reflecting of ideas, so that the first line may be, the ideas in the first line are simply restated 
in, with other words in the second line. So it's, the second line is, is a synonym of the first line. But there are other ways that this is structured. There's about six or seven. I only want to cover the first three today. The first is called, as you would think, synonymous parallelism. This is usually in a two-line or, or dice ditch, which means two lines, uh, of poetry. The second line reinforces the thought that's in the first line by using similar words and concepts. Now, this is very helpful in helping us to understand the meaning of a word, because if you have a word that has three or four meanings in one line, and you have a synonym that has two or three meanings in the second line, part of those two words, their meanings overlap. And that's where we come to understand what, how a word is specifically used. So we'll have some fun doing some word studies as we go through, uh, as we go through the Proverbs. An example of synonymous parallelism is found in our second verse. To know wisdom and instruction is the first line. The second line repeats that idea in a slightly different way using Different words to perceive is parallel or synonymous to know. Words of understanding is similar to wisdom and instruction. And so through the parallelism, we, the, the main idea uh, of the first line is reflected and reinforced in the second line. It's not that it's a, it's not just a repetition, but it is, it kind of moves us forward a little bit in our understanding. Proverbs 11.25 is another example. The generous soul will be made rich, and he who waters, see that's a synonym of being generous, uh, he who waters will also be watered himself. The person who is generous will also be a recipient of generosity. Uh, Proverbs 12.28, in the way of righteousness is life, and in its pathway, pathway is parallel to way. Uh, in its pathway, there is no death. So it states it from a slightly negative uh, perspective in, the, in, in uh, reinforcing the thought that the way of righteousness is life. Many people today think that the way of life is being able to do whatever you want to do, no matter how immoral or unethical it may be. But what the Bible teaches is that only in the path of righteousness is there real life. So that first form is synonymous parallelism. The second is synthetic parallelism. Synthetic parallelism, this is when the second line adds or develops the idea that's stated in the first line. Uh, we have an example from Proverbs 4.23, keep your heart with all diligence. That means to guard over your thinking. Keep your heart with all diligence, for out of it springs the issues of life. And so the second line explains why the first line is so important, because out of your heart come the issues of life. Then the third example that I'm going to convey this morning is the idea of antithetic parallelism. Antithetic or antithesis, it's the opposites. The thought of the first line is then contrasted in the second line. So that Proverbs 10.1, we read the Proverbs of Solomon, a wise son makes a glad father, 
But a foolish son, see the contrast. We will, frequently this is indicated by the word but in the, or however in the uh, uh, translation. But a foolish son is the grief of his mother. Now this doesn't mean that a wise son only makes the father happy or a um, foolish son only makes the mother sad. Uh, father and mother here are representing the totality of the parents. And so it's saying that the wise son, the son that is positive to the word and applies the word is going to make the parents happy. But the one that is foolish, the one who makes bad decisions, the one who fails uh, spiritually is going to be gr- bring grief and sorrow and sadness to the parents. Proverbs 14.34 says that righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. What happens in the perversion of the world is that sin and uh, licentiousness and antinomianism under the guise of freedom uh, is thought by many to exalt a nation. Let everybody do their own thing and do whatever they want to do. That's the world in which we live. But the Scripture says that the only way to exalt or strengthen a nation is through righteousness and that sin brings reproach. It's only a perversion that twists that. Proverbs 15.1 draws a contrast. A soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. So you get in a conflict, argument, a little tense situation with somebody Uh, the issue is to reply softly, quietly, without getting emotional and upset, and that calms down things and turns away wrath. Uh, In contrast, if you get upset, get angry, get insulting with the other person, then that just aggravates the circumstances and increases the anger. So these are the first of three Uh, types of parallelism and structures that we have, and this relates to what we have in the verses we're going to look at uh, this morning. Another thing that is important in Proverbs is understanding that this is a book about handling problems, how to face and handle problems. That's one reason that it's good, a good practice for people to read through the Proverbs on a monthly basis, read one a day. You have 31 Proverbs, so you can usually wake your way through by reading one a day. If you couple that with reading uh, four or five Psalms, then that's uh, really good. Read some other passages as well. But uh, if you can do that, that's at least a good start in reading the Scriptures on a regular basis. What we see in life and observe in life is that there are basically four ways people handle the problems in their life. The first way is that they basically ignore the problem and hope that it goes away. We just don't want to face some problems. We just don't want to deal with the emotions that are going to come up. We don't want to deal with some of the ugliness in life. We don't want to face some of the bad decisions that that are made, especially in terms of relations with spouses or relations with children. We'd just rather look the other way and hope that somehow uh, we're going to get past it. Uh, Often... Christians do this and rationalize it as trusting God. We say, oh, I'm just going to put it in God's hands, and then we put the blindfolds on and we ignore it. Often what we need to do is trust God and face it. Trusting God doesn't mean putting it in God's hands and just turning a blind eye to reality. 
Often we have to confront problems, confront issues in our own life, confront things in other people's life before things get much worse. So often the idea of trusting God isn't this idea of denial, uh, which it is often used to sort of uh, cloak and disguise. Now, we all know that after a while, when you've been ignoring problems, that it gets to the point where you can't ignore it. Uh, reality often has a way of asserting itself in our lives in ways that are not very pleasant. So we try to do as little as we can to cover it up and camouflage it and just move forward because we don't want to really pull some problems out into the open in broad daylight because it's embarrassing, it's difficult, we feel somewhat impotent in addressing it, we don't really want to know. Uh, we don't know what to do, so we just try to minimize it as best we can. Third way in which we try to handle problems is just uh, we, we may take a run at it, but it's not a very, very strong run, and we give up pretty quickly. Some problems we have in life are problems that need to be addressed over a long period because it took a long period for those things to develop and to impact us. And we, we have to have perseverance and endurance, the Scripture says, in order to face those on the basis of the Word of God. And that's the fourth way. And this is the rare way, the rare person. Only the spiritually courageous and the spiritually mature person does the last way, and that is face the problem openly and honestly, uh, straight up, until the problem is resolved using God's problem-solving devices. Now, that may not mean that the problem goes away, but it means that the way in which we face it and handle it in our own lives is going to enable us to grow and mature through that particular problem. Now, much of Proverbs is addressing the wise course of action when we face certain problems. Now, as we look at this opening introduction, the writer of Proverbs is telling us why we need to study the Proverbs. And this is laid out through a series of purpose clauses or purpose prepositions and verbs in uh, these first seven verses. Uh, each verse, except for verse 5, starts with a purpose, uh, preposition of purpose in the Hebrew. The first verse says that our purpose is to know wisdom and instruction. Second, to perceive the words of understanding. Now, we get into some, just some introductory ideas here that are, that are very important. We are to know two different things, wisdom and instruction. This, the first word wisdom implies learning. Wisdom comes from instruction. But this is a particular kind of instruction. So let's start with wisdom, first of all, or start even with the word knowledge, to know from the Hebrew word yada, which means to be conscious of or aware of, uh, to perceive certain things, to learn them, to make them part of our thinking and part of our decision-making process. We are to know, we are to come go through a learning process. We have to do a little bit of study on what is the learning process that we have to go through. But we go through this this process so that something becomes internalized in our souls. And the, the first stated, I think this is stated in sort of the, 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 from the end result to the beginning, 
We have wisdom as the end result. Wisdom, as I've said already, is the skillful application of divine principles to life. It is not just knowing what those principles are, but being able to utilize them and apply them in a skillful manner, in a manner that produces something of spiritual beauty and value that will last into eternity. It is beyond simply simple application. Let me give you a little bit of an illustration here. You, we all know and have observed and maybe experienced in our own lives going through certain skill developments as young children. Maybe our parents uh, t- had us take piano lessons or voice lessons or we played in some form of athletics. And maybe you had a measure of skill and talent. You could pretty much understand what the coach or the instructor was telling you, could, you to do, and you could do it. And maybe you had a, a, a certain skill level at it. But then there were others who were gifted at it, and they just went beyond. These were the ones who ended up going on to uh, maybe make this part of their profession. They played college football or professional put, football, or they went into uh, theater or professional singing or something of that nature. That's when you, th- those people, the ones I'm talking about, would have the kind of wisdom or skill that we're looking at here. It's not just learning, saying, do do these five things, and then many people can go home and do those five things, but taking those five things and making them such an internalized part of your thinking that it begins to work itself out in your life in an exceptional way so that it produces a life of value. Now, that takes time. Uh, Beauty isn't created in a few days going to Bible class once a week. And, and writing down a few notes, that, that won't cut it. You have to immerse yourself into the Word so that the Word becomes uh, immersed in you and then works itself out uh, in your life. That's wisdom. Instruction is the second word in this first line. This is the, the Hebrew word, mashar. And this is an interesting word because it's not only receiving instruction, which is what you are doing now, uh, this is just one level of receiving instruction where you're listening to somebody teach you something, but it has the idea of, of uh, enforced discipline. It has the idea of correction and rebuke. It has the idea of straightening out uh, someone who is doing something wrong and uh, chastising them. Wisdom is the idea of skill for living, and instruction is the idea of a disciplined education which involves correction and rebuke. I guess God fails the self-image test, doesn't he? In other words, biblical teaching and instruction involves failure and correction for failure. You don't learn anything by having a soccer team where nobody keeps score. You don't learn anything in competition by having a baseball team where everybody wins and nobody strikes out. Uh, Everybody's a winner may look good in some human viewpoint psychological analysis, but you're not going to learn anything. Uh, You're not going to develop character, and that's also part of the idea in this word. It is not just learning facts, but it is relating it to character uh, development. So we have to learn, we have to experience failure and correction, and all of that produces uh, character development. And there is this moral uh, aspect to instruction. 
So the first thing we're lo- we look at here uh, this morning is that the purpose for studying Proverbs is so that we know wisdom and that we can uh, have a disciplined education from God's Word, learning how to think as God would have us to think. Now, this begins, as I said earlier, with the fear of the Lord. We have to submit to the authority of the Lord. That means we have to face the fact that we're limited and that we are under condemnation as as sinful creatures, but that God has provided the perfect solution through salvation in Jesus Christ, that we have to submit ourselves to the authority of God and say, you know, I can't ever do anything that would make me good enough for God. Whatever my failures are, they've been paid for, though, by Jesus Christ on the cross. The sin has been dealt with, and the only solution is to trust in him. That's the starting point of wisdom. Once we have salvation, we are a new creature in Christ, Scripture says. There's a whole new aspect to, to learning and acquiring wisdom, and it's done under the teaching ministry of God the Holy Spirit. So this is the starting point. And the issue for us is do we have the courage and the conviction to say, I really want to pursue wisdom in my life and to learn what that means and to apply it across the board in every area. It takes courage it takes stamina, it takes endurance, but above all, it takes coming to, to class, coming to church, studying the Word on a regular basis because we have to re-educate our minds according to those eternal principles of God's Word. And that's what's inherent in Proverbs. Proverbs isn't just a nice little study on great little maxims for living uh, like poor Richard's almanac, but it includes in every verse a challenge to apply this and make it part of your life because this is what will have eternal value and significance. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study wisdom, to realize that wisdom goes beyond simple application to an advanced application where under the ministry of God, the Holy Spirit, and the teaching of your word, that you, you allow us to take the principles of your word, applying them in our lives to create something that glorifies you, that creates spiritual beauty and value in our lives that has eternal value. Father, we pray that as we study this book that we might come to a greater understanding of how we are to push forward in our spiritual life in terms of wisdom and submission to your instruction and teaching. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning that's unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity to make that both sure and certain. Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins. He paid the penalty for your sins so that all that is left is for you to trust in him. You don't have to do anything to gain his approval. You don't have to do anything to make yourself worthy of salvation because there's nothing we can do. Christ has done it all, and all that is left for us is to make that decision to trust in him. And the instant we do, we have eternal life that can never and will never be taken from from us because all sin has been paid for. Father, we pray that you will challenge us with what we have studied this morning and that we will have the spiritual courage and stamina to study through the book of Proverbs and to put these principles into practice in our lives. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.